everyone. Welcome to St. Clarence. And tonight we have Luke McInerney speaking on the early Irish church. I met Luke last summer on one of his field trips. I've heard lots about these field trips, but I've never been on one. And I was really, really amazed. Thank you, Luke. It, it was a super experience. And I kind of, I thought, could we ask him to speak to us? And I never thought he'd say yes, and he did. So thank you. And I've been telling people about him and saying, What's is so impressive about him is he's so young. He has a full-time job as a banker. He's Australian, now Irish Australian, aren't you? How many mm -hmm. generations? Uh, three. Three generations. Mm -hmm. So he was compared, I think it might have been you, Sandra said, is he like the Brian Cox of medieval <laughs> history? And I thought, what a brilliant way of describing him because that's kind of what it's like. So anyway, he's going to speak to us tonight on one of these very well-researched subjects. Okay, so welcome everyone. My name is Luke McInerney, and today I'll speak about the church in medieval Ireland. I feel honoured and privileged to deliver this lecture here in St. Flannan's, the beautiful St. Flannan's Cathedral in Killaloo. And so ever the historian, I think it only right and proper uh, for me to point out that an ancestor of the McInerneys, a certain Donica, is noted in the medieval genealogies as the Erkanach, Kildalua, in other words, a steward of the church lands of Killaloo. He lives in the 12th century, but I'm sure he's smiling down on us today. So my own direct line of the family left Castletown Ara Parish in 1857, just across the lock here, to Ballarat in Australia. But the name in that parish is still known locally, curiously enough, as Kinertney, and some of you here today might even know my relatives over in Killore and, and, and Lucktay. So this lecture was initially delivered back in 2021, and I've taken the liberty of extending it, and therefore enabling me to delve into further detail some of the points which I initially could only really give cursory attention to. I should emphasize the purpose of this lecture here today is to give what invariably will be just a superficial coverage to a very large and indeed complex topic. And I hope that by giving this overview, I can inspire, inspire you and motivate you to embark on your own study of the period and the themes raised here today. But I would also advise that while studying the sources, it's crucial to gain an understanding uh, of this period through not only the study of sources, but also through uh, going out into the field, you know, touching the ruins themselves, so to speak. So that real visceral sense is, is also very important. So visiting the sites under study here is an irreplaceable way to imbue yourself in the landscape um, and the context of early medieval Ireland. As we know, Ireland is very fortunate enough to have a lot of well-preserved sites which are accessible to visit. And so as I go through this lecture today, I'll be touching on a number of these places. So I encourage you to get out in the field, get your wellies dirty, and go see the sites for, your, for yourself. So today's lecture will provide a brief overview of the early Irish church, and I've structured the presentation in the following way. Next slide, please. So we have the introduction, early beginnings, consolidation, the golden age, the so-called age of saints and scholars, and then reform and change. Next slide, please. So the purpose of today's lecture is to provide a somewhat superficial yet wide-ranging survey of the early Irish church. Given the complexity of the topic, I have had to be rather judicious with what to include. So, with this caveat up front, my main purpose is to introduce the idea of the early Irish church and how it was organised, touch on who its personnel were, what were its distinctive features. At a minimum, I hope to instil in you a spark of interest, 
so that you can follow up on some of the main themes that I, can only, that I will give only cursory attention to today. At this ju juncture, it's important to set out what this lecture is and what it is not. I'll tackle the last bit of that statement first. So this is not a talk about the so-called Celtic Church. This phrase will be a very well-known one to you, perhaps, but rather imprecise. And many of you will be aware of various books that purport to explain how the early church in Ireland was heterodox with doctrines that reflected what we may deem as modern sensibilities around concerns such as environmentalism, feminism, amongst others. For some 19th century writers, the idea of a Celtic church linked back to some misty ancient time that was somehow pure and devoid, devoid of what they saw as Roman influence, with devolved structures and flattened hierarchies that really reflected post-Reformation ecclesiological realities rather than the historical reality when you look at the sources themselves. So none of this really stands up against the historical evidence, of course. On the contrary, when we read the writings of the early Irish church, we are struck by its general conformity with the rest of Christendom, not least its hierarchical structures and its collection of, uh, of early medieval church canons and writings that mention the threefold ministry of deacon, priest, and bishop. And of course, a link to the papacy as a final arbitra arbitrator in disputes when local synods were undecided. So taken together, the evidence is clear that the early Irish church was by no means an unorthodox branch of the Latin church, despite perhaps the tainted views of later commentators such as Gureldus Cambrensis. The Irish Church's conformity is no great surprise, of course, and the personnel in the Irish Church, while conscious of living at the edge of the world, to quote that, to quote that famous expression used by St. Columb Columbanus, were very much co cognizant of being part of what we can deem the universal church, and which the Irish, at its most westerly edge, was very much a member of. And of course, a belief in the real presence during the Eucharistic sacrament was adhered to by the Irish Church. <clears throat> So this brings me on to my more substantive point, what this lecture actually is. So it's an introduction to the early Irish church and attempts to make sense of the massive documentary and physical evidence that exists from this very formative period in Irish history. It also tries to help explain those interlinkages between Latin and the vernacular literacy and the church, as well as provide a context of development of monasteries and ecclesiastical settlements from aromatic origins to the great monastic houses which they eventually became. So when I say early, I'm referring to the period of conversion around the 430s through until the 1100s. From the 1100s, we see the convening of a number of Irish church synods, which implemented a series of reforms that saw a significant change in the governance and institutional structure of the church in Ireland. In some ways, elements of the pre-12th century church continued well beyond the changes of that century, indeed down to the 16th and early 17th century. But today I'll just confine my comments to the period which historians call the early medieval historical period. And that brings us up to the 1100s. As I've just mentioned, by the 1100s, things change rather dramatically. First was the implementation of the Gregorian reforms in Ireland, a point I'll touch on just briefly towards the end of the lecture. And then with the Norman invasion of 1169 and the ensuing uh, political and cultural disorder uh, emanating from that. The problem of studying the early Irish church for medievalists is not that there are too few sources, but indeed in many ways there are actually too many sources, which makes it a challenge to make sense of it all. This reflects the uniqueness of the Irish experience, 
Ireland, of course, was never conquered by Rome, and yet by the fifth century had embraced Christianity at a time when Christianity was retreating from England, five centuries indeed before Christianity took hold in much of North, Central and Eastern Europe. Another unparalleled development is that the Irish, not being Latin speakers, had to learn Latin as a second language. And in doing so, they not only produced some of Western Europe's finest Latinists, but they also set out to write and study their own language. Shanguelga, Old Irish, and even to produce treatises on, on its grammar and vocabulary. So in doing this, the Irish were the earliest people in Europe to write in the vernacular since the fall of Rome. This is a really significant fact and probably owed something to the fact that Ireland was never subjugated by Rome and thus the vernacular was never supplanted or made uh, inferior. On the contrary, the Irish held their own language in high esteem and took great pains to link its origins to the biblical story about the Tower of Babel. The conversion to Christianity saw great advances in literature and science, making Irish monasteries and scholars some of the most important contributors to European intellectual life during this period. I'll demonstrate this as we proceed through today's lecture. I have mentioned we have many sources to study the early Irish church. So what are those sources? I've listed on this slide a selection of some of those, uh, some of those sources. For example, we have several seventh century saints' lives. Consider, for example, the life of St. Bridget or the life of St. Patrick, or indeed the life of Colum Killer, dating from the eighth century. We have poetry, such as the Olvera Holum Killer, or the Canticle of Columba, traditionally believed to have been one of the earliest writings in Irish from the 600s. And we have the Irish annals, which were composed at various monasteries beginning at Iona in the seventh century. We also have many writings that have been preserved in continental monasteries, founded, of course, by Irish clerics. Think of St. Gallen in Switzerland, Regensburg in southern Germany, or Bobbio in northern Italy. Some writings of the Irish church were very popular. For example, we have the voyage of St. Brendan, or Brandon, which became essentially a bestseller in medieval Europe. Aspects of Dante's Inferno are said to derive from allusions to hell and the afterlife, contained in a 10th century vernacular text, the vision of Adovnan. And finally, we have physical evidence all around us, not just in terms of church ruins, but also in terms of stone iconography and high crosses, the ubiquitous existence of holy wells, kilines, and other places of devotion linked to the founders and saints of the early Irish church. But most important, and what I'd like to briefly touch on here now, are Irish place names. Religiously imbued place names are found throughout Ireland and in a great many of instances point to early church sites. I would hazard a guess that Ireland surpasses most European countries in terms of sheer volume of place names with links to the early church. It's also important to recognise that our understanding of the Irish church has of course changed over time. The translation and publication of a lot of material, especially Irish language materials, has enabled us to understand the workings of the early Irish church better and to see that its doctrines were, with few exceptions, in step with the universal church and that many of its personnel, especially from the 7th to 10th centuries, were very impressive with a reach well beyond the territorial confines of Ireland. Not only was this small island on the, westerly, on the westerly fringe of Europe responsible for the initial Christianization of much of Scotland and Northern England, but also parts of Bavaria and Northern France, and that the monastic schools in Ireland made an outstanding contribution to the fields of Latin grammar, mathematics, geography, philosophy, and other such fields of study. And all this from a people who were never subjects of the Roman Empire. 
So the story of the early Irish church is an extraordinary story that deserves to be told. The first thing to note is that in any study of the Irish church, one needs to take account of the two languages used during that period. The Irish church regarded itself as a constituent part of the Western church, and to this end, the liturgical language, of course, was Latin. Many documents, including three writings ascribed to St. Patrick, along with many saints' lives, were written in Latin. At the same time, the Irish wrote in their own language, which in this period of study was Sean Gwalga, or Old Irish. Irish is the oldest vernacular language written in, -Roman, written in the post-Roman Empire in Western Europe. And we have many early writings produced by Irish clerics in that language. What I wish to present here is a general guide for reading the Irish landscape so as to identify those links to the early Irish church. There's no better way to do this than via the study of place names or onomastics. I have some examples both of place names that directly invoke early church settlements and also words that have made it into modern use surnames but which have invariably an ecclesiastical link. So to take some examples, we have of course, of course Kildara, kill meaning church in, uh, in Irish, Dara of, of oak, anglicizes Kildare. We have Daunach, meaning a church building from the Latin Dominicum. We have Donnybrook, Daunach Broch, the, the church of St. Broch in, in southern Dublin. We have Monaster, which is sometimes used obviously with a connotation of monastery and deriving from Latin monasterium, and we have monaster Boyce as the anglicized version. We have other place names such as Dishat or, or Dysart, derived from the Latin Dysertium, which of course we have the English word desert from, meaning a, a hermitage, but actually a wild place, a place where there's no settlement. And in terms of surnames, we have Makantagat, um, son of the priest, son of the Sagat, um, Sagat being priest in Irish. So when we, when we survey the early medieval church, it's instructive to not simply look at the church buildings themselves, but also where they were located. The geography of ecclesiastical settlement says a lot about the first few centuries of the Christianization of Ireland. If we look at the monasteries and cathedrals that became prominent in later times, many were founded on important communication routes. This obviously is not particularly surprising as these communities needed access to the outside world in which to procure materials for manuscript, manuscript production and most importantly for any ma uh, monastic community for um, the production of wine, um, importing wine for the celebration of the liturgy as well as food and other necessities required for the monastic community to flourish. But when we survey many of the names of early monastic sites, we find, a, we find that a high proportion use the word clun from the Irish meaning a watery meadow. The best example would be Clon Vagnoish or, or Clon Magnoise. We also find other names which are prominent such as Ross from the Irish meaning a wood. And we find this in various place names. Kilrosh uh, in West Clare would be one such example. And uh, obviously opposite St. Sennan's monastic site on Scattery Island. The reason I'm mentioning all this is because these names reveal something about the topography and in turn reveal information about the, how these early, early church sites may have originally come into being. We know that many early churches were situated on boundary lands between kingdoms and that such land was often marginal land or land that was used for a variety of communal purposes such as inauguration ceremonies of local kings, military hostings and other large scale gatherings. 
it would appear that many of the monasteries originated in land grants made by rulers to the church and which had an element of marginality about them. They were often on boundaries and often considered marginal land such as watery meadows or clun. Granting land to the church on a, on a kingdom's boundaries was consistent with the idea of boundary zones being a place of communal activity and probably areas not heavily populated, all good reasons to situate a church or a, or a monastic community there. In other cases, we have evidence that church sites were granted by one kingly dynasty to the church in order to neutralize that land so that rivals couldn't enjoy it themselves. A good example of this would be the grant of the Rock of Cashel to the church, despite it once being the royal fortress of the Ogunokta, kings of Munster, the main rivals of the Delgesh. We also find that the sighting of monasteries, especially the larger ones, shows that many were clustered in the Irish Midlands and in South Ulster. <clears throat> it has been explained by some historians that this geography, this concentrated geography, reflected trade and communication routes. It's also probably no coincidence that it was the, these sets of monasteries in, in the Midlands which saw a great flowering of literature in the pre-11th century period. Their scriptoria were especially active on the eve of the 12th century reform of the Irish church, a point I shall return to later in the lecture. Continuing on the theme of place names, we are fortunate that the building materials of the early Irish church has been preserved in the Irish language, enabling us to get a sense of what these structures ostensibly were like. As I touched on earlier, we have the form Dara, meaning oak in the place name Kildara or Kildare, meaning the church built of oak. We also encounter the place name Ardmore in respect to ecclesiastical establishments, meaning the high or the Ard and the, the large church, Moor. St. Declan's Monastery of Ardmore in Waterford certainly lives up to this meaning, it being perched on a high spot with commanding views yonder towards the seaside. We also have Killard in West Clare, which simply means the high church. Its location on a hill overlooking the Atlantic certainly lives up to its, to its name. So the study of place names can reveal evidence of early Christian settlement in Ireland and sometimes even reveals the physical attributes of these churches. Most Irish churches and monastic settlements of the period under discussion appear to have been constructed from wood, generally of oak, but sometimes of birch, such as the name Kilbaha on the Loophead Peninsula probably suggests. But there is evidence that some of these early churches were also built of earth. And, and results from excavations show that stone churches were often preceded by timber ones. We find this in the excavation of Inish Kaltra, just down here on the lock, where the remains of an early earthen church were found, possibly dating from the 7th or early 8th century. If we look at the annals, it is clear that until the 11th century or so, churches that were generally, churches were generally of wooden construction, while stone-built churches were often represented as primary churches and were regarded as the exception. The pattern of building and the siting of stone churches, of course, reflected local conditions. And we may suppose that in the stony regions, for example, in the Boran in County Clare or the Aran Islands or parts of Connemara, stone-built churches may have been constructed earlier than those found in Leinster or South Munster, where wood was more plentiful. Many of these stone-built churches shared common characteristics, such as pre-Romanesque features, such, such as Cyclopean mason, masonry in their construction. This was a technique that used large stones that were not laid in horizontal courses. Many examples survive today, although often intermingled with later masonry courses, which have tended to obscure the original masonry patterns. 
Okay, so enough on the ecclesiastical landscape and naming conventions of churches. We shall now turn to the story of conversion. So from this point in the lecture, I want to guide us through the Christianization of Ireland, and in subsequent slides, we will touch on church organization, the consolidation of the church, and the literary production of the monastic schools. The earliest documentation that we have about the Christianization of Ireland refers to Bishop Palladius, who was from Gaul, modern day France, and who was sent, and I quote, to the Irish believers in Christ as their first bishop by Pope Celestine. This appears as an entry in the year 431 in the Chronicle of Prosper, and it indicates that Palladius's mission to Ireland was endorsed by the Pope, which means that it was an official mission with specific aims. What is striking about this reference is that it suggests that there was already a community living in Ireland that was Christian, and perhaps they were of a size that required a bishop. Obviously bishops, uh, sorry, obviously bishops needed a community, and a community with a priest needed a bishop to, concentrate, uh, uh, to consecrate churches and to ordain clerics. So there must have been a sizable Christian community in Ireland in the fifth century before St. Patrick. So the question is, why do you send a bishop to such a community? The intention may have been to establish a first diocese in Ireland. Of the Christian community in Ireland at this time, almost nothing is known, but we can speculate that they were trading with Gaul and familiar with Christianity. Later legend suggests that Palladius's mission was a failure and that it was confined to the southern part of Ireland around the county of Waterford. This would support the theory that the community had links with Gaul, and on that basis it was presumed that Christianity reached Ireland via these early links and had a first beachhead in the areas around Waterford and Wexford in the southeast of the country. Almost no visible trace of Palladius's mission has survived. There are no church remains, writings, or liturgical books. There is, however, an Easter table which sets out the calculation of Easter. This is a, an important piece of evidence which shows that the calculation was based on an 84-year cycle, reflecting the methods devised in the third and fourth century in northern Italy and Gaul. So this is the first tangible link between Irish Christians and the church in Gaul and its practices. It also links the Irish church to the type of Easter calculations which were ultimately being worked out in Rome at that, at that time. But of course, it is St. Patrick to whom we credit the conversion of Ireland. It is difficult to overemphasize the uniqueness of the patrician mission here and the importance of Patrick's own writings. In fact, his writings are unparalleled in Western Europe as an account of a man who was held captive beyond the frontiers of Rome and who lived to document it. I will assume that we're all familiar with the story of Patrick's capture at 16 when he was brought to Ireland as a slave from Britain, himself being the son of a Romano-British administrator and a deacon in a local church. Patrick's escape and subsequent return to Ireland in the year 432 is what hagiographers have focused on, and rather uniquely, we have in his own hand his confessio, or his confession. This remarkable document shows that his missionary activity was mainly centred on northeast and northwest Ireland. During his missions, he was active in baptising converts and in leaving followers here and there to establish new churches. We know that his followers were a motley crew consisting of former Druids, nobles, as well as some British followers. We have direct evidence of this in the persons of Mokda, Secundinus, and Auxilius, all three of whom were Britons who established churches in Ireland. But aside from Patrick's own writing, there is no reliable records for the fifth century 
which would shed light on how the church was forming in this early stage. We don't reliably know, for example, how many bishops there were. Later documents will describe the number 150, but this is probably apocryphal. And equally, we don't know what type of community sprung up around these early foundations. Whilst we have churchmen in the middle of the sixth century proficient in Latin, we don't know how the foundations of biblical scholarship and Latin learning were put in place by Patrick's mission or indeed by his immediate successors. On the surface, it would look like Ireland was converted quickly. Its proximity to Britain and the Roman Empire would have meant that the Irish and their Druids knew about Christianity. Certainly the country can be considered converted by the year 600. And yet, later in that century, legislation from local church synods suggested that Druids were still about, although the reference to them suggests that they were already marginalized by that stage. The flurry of church records which have survived from the 700s indicates that the church by that stage was confident and active and took a leading part in politics and law. This doesn't mean that pre-Christian folk tradition and beliefs were completely erased. We have in Ireland much evidence of, the, of this continuing down to the so-called devotional revolution of the mid-19th century in the form of Beltaner and Lunasa traditions, as well as other folk practices that have long persisted. But the evidence would, would show or suggest that official or organized pre-Christian beliefs were by the eighth century more or less eclipsed by Christianity and had been on the back foot for a considerable, considerable, considerable amount of time before that. We may suppose that it was 150 years from the time of Patrick's missions that Christianity became the established religion of the people. One can speculate on the reasons for this relatively quick conversion. The prestige of Latin Christianity owed much to its links to the Roman Empire. This would have made it attractive to the native elite as a cultural phenomenon. Christianity is very much a religion of the book, of literacy, and this stands in contrast to, to the Parthenon of Celtic gods worshipped by the Irish at the time of Patrick, but which there is little uh, surviving in terms of written accounts. The strong link between Christianity and literacy conferred a status on the new religion, but also its unique moral framework, whereby women and slaves were liberated, was revolutionary and offered a different type of idealized life for aristocratic women who were often traded as commodities in dynastic marriage settlements. Patrick himself must have had unique appeal. During his time as a slave, he learned to speak Old Irish, and so he could address converts directly at a confrontation with Lyra, the high king in his stronghold at Tara. Patrick converted the, the king's chief poet and Brehan, or lawgiver, a man by the name of Duffock. There is a reference in the Irish annals which states that upon his conversion, Duffock and Patrick revised a corpus of Irish law, which is known as the Shanachas Mar, in order to ensure that it complied with Christianity. This is a significant story because it demonstrates the fusion of, native, of the native intelligentsia, the poets and the lawyers, with Christianity, and it occurred at a, at a very early stage, and that it wasn't simply the case of an external imposition of Christianity, but rather from the be beginning we see this acculturation of Christianity with the native culture, a situation that gave rise to an element of syncretism, especially in the literary tradition. We have found many examples of pagan poets and druids converting to Christianity in this early period. Probably the most emphatic example of this would be the poet-turned-churchman Cormann MacLeanin of Cloyne in East Cork, who is credited with having written some of the earliest poems in Irish in the second half of the 6th century. 
Koman Maclanian was an accomplished filler or poet, and in the 560s he met, he met Brendan of Clonfort, and under his influence, Coleman entered the religious life, after which he founded his chief ecclesiastical foundation, Cloyne, and where a school of poetry may have been founded, suggesting those types of interconnections between the native schools and their scholarship in poetry, or filiact, with that of the church and its scholarship in Latin. While in the case of Coleman MacLanian, we see the influence of the fili, or the poets, in the church at this relatively early period, the general view is that the influence in the church, oh, sorry, the general view is that the influence of their, uh, uh, their influence, the, the, the influence of the poets in the church was especially evident from the eighth century onwards. So it's probably no coincidence that the fili became associated with the church at this time, as it had, as an institution, moved away from its initial diocesan-based structure to a more decentralized structure by this period. At any rate, it's significant that a cross-fertilization between the native intelligentsia, the poets, the historians, and the church occurred, although probably this was nothing too exceptional, but rather, a but rather I suppose, natural, given that literacy is what bound these groups of learned men together. And in this context, it would be normal that the church as an institution, which was at the same time a repository of learning, attracted the talents of the native intelligentsia, such as the poets, the lawyers, the historians. The story of Cormann MacLanian and others like him show continuity with the traditions of the past, and that with some reshaping to ensure compliance with Christianity, these traditions and laws could be adapted for a Christian society. I suspect that the success of the conversion process can be attributed to the flexibility and a degree of acculturation demonstrated by these first missions to the native culture, to say nothing about the appeal of Christianity from a moral standpoint, or of its rich literacy and broad intellectual tradition, which must have had unique appeal amongst the intellectual classes here in Ireland. The last thing to return to is a point which we had touched on earlier. Was the Irish church a Gallic or a British church? At the risk of sitting on the fence, and we ought to be careful in making any definitive pronouncements, as the evidence from this early, early period is anything but definitive, it would seem that the Irish church in the fifth century enjoyed influences from both the Gallic and British church tradition. Given that Patrick was from Britain and Latin was used for centuries, the Latin used centuries for centuries in Ireland was that of insular Latin, which is a type of Latin also used in Britain, it seems axiomatic that the church continued to maintain links with Britain. With the onset of the Anglo-Saxons in England in the sixth century, those links, of course, came under strain. But some aspects of the Irish church also, also shows Gallic or French influence, not least the Irish church's interest in the cult of St. Martin of Tours and the writings of Isidore of Seville, which may have come to Ireland via Gaul. Perhaps it was a diversity of these traditions at this earlier period which contributed to the flowering of the, of the Irish church in subsequent centuries. Certainly the breadth and scope of writings by Irish clerics show a broad intellectual curiosity which must have, must have been nourished by a number of different foreign influences. Of course, the Irish church also benefited from wider influence, influences from within the universal church, such as the writings of the patristic fathers and the historians of, of church, uh, and historians of church history have demonstrated, all of which are evidence in the Irish church canons, which quote, which quote quite liberally from the patristic sources and other early church sources. So the picture is that we have of the fifth to seventh century is quite mixed, with a multiplicity of influences brought to bear on the Irish church. 
One of the abiding questions is a knowledge of Greek in the Irish church and whether that can be attributed to links with the Gallic church or quite possibly the British church via a school established in Canterbury under the Greek Archbishop Theodore of Tarsus in the 670s. This school was famed for instructing students in Greek and Latin. We are therefore left wondering if Greek learning was at least in part derived from Irish students involved in the Canterbury School in the seventh century, and thus one of the many links between the Irish and the British church. I'm going to touch on church organization. I should caveat my lecture here that church organization is a very complicated topic, and it's much more complicated because things changed over time. My purpose is just to give a flavor of some of the current thinking about the organization of the early medieval church in Ireland. Like any organization, the Irish church during this period was influenced by centrifugal forces, as well as factors that worked in the opposite direction. I'll explore some of these in the time that we have left today. We are fortunate that we have some of the physical evidence of what these early church sites look like. Indeed, even after more than a millennium, we can use basic mapping to identify this evidence. Using satellite view on Google Maps, one can find in the Irish countryside numerous examples of those circular enclosures of early church sites. For example, in the town of Armagh, we see in the street pattern around the Church of Ireland Cathedral there, that it follows the ancient curvilinear shape of the original enclosure of a monastic site. This basic pattern is referred to in a poem from the 13th century, so much later than our period, when the Bardic poet, Gilabrija Mokonmi describes Armagh's church as a rounded edifice, which can also be translated as a rounded wall. He may very well have been describing the, al the elements of the older circular enclosure that were incorporated into later church building, but which were still visible to the poet when he wrote those verses in the mid 13th century. We can see a similar shape in the road that skirts around the monastic site of Lora in North Tipperary tracing what would have been the outer enclosure of that monastic settlement originally associated with St. Ruan. Another good example is Kilteranen ecclesiastical settlement near the Galway-Clare border. Here we can clearly see a circular enclosure that was partitioned within, separating different areas, which presume, presumably had different functions within the enclosure itself. Such functions would have included living quarters for the church's clerics, as well as areas to provide hospitality to guests. Originally, these monasteries were enclosed by, enclosed by a vallum, or in other words, a ditch rampart, which helped to separate the monastic community from the secular world. In some sites, we find reliquary shrines, and these were usually positioned close to the primary church, such as we find in the 12th century stone church of Temple Cronon in the Boron. Here is situated two gabled slab shrines, which may in fact date from the early 7th century and possibly held the bones of the church's founder saint. We can see aerial images of a number of ecclesiastical settlements of varying size and importance. The common feature of course is a curvilinear enclosure which can be clearly discerned from the images. Here I've included some aerial images of Armagh, Kilternan and Nendrum. Note the street pattern around Armagh Cathedral which betrays the original monastic enclosure and also the internal partitions which can be clearly seen in the case of Kilternan. In the third image, we have Nendrum, which is notable for its 7th century tidal mill. It presents an excellent example of a double enclosure within which stands a church building, a high tower, and other important structures. The origins of these circular enclosures in which monastic communities built their primary church and living quarters 
is somewhat debated by scholars. Some of these enclosures appear to have been secular sediments that were gifted to the church. We have direct evidence of this phenomenon in saints' lives. For example, in the life of Makreha or Behel Vakreha, we read that his church at Kilmacrihi near Lizcana in Northwest Clare was donated by the local king of Corcomroe, it probably serving as a king's royal fort. There are also other instances in the surviving literature of secular sites becoming monastic establishments. Local rulers saw the advantage of having a, a, a monastery situated on their land, and apart from the benefits that could accrue as a site of culture and learning, the tarmen of the church could also serve as a place of refuge. Monasteries also function as places where movable wealth could be safely stored. Another factor for the prevalence of circular enclosures is the fact that weaker lineages or weaker families had little chance of achieving political power. And those who perhaps were ousted from power by more powerful dynasties sometimes attempted to gain prestige by setting themselves up in their homesteads as a monastic community instead. In this way, whole families embraced the monastic life. And in doing so, we may suppose that their previously enclosed secular sites, the raths and the ring forts, with their delineated boundaries, made for a convenient, a convenient design for a new monastic community.